Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Good morning, Scott Self. How are you? I'm good. Hey, my air, my heater just kicked on. Is it making a... Nope. Out of an, okay, good. My heater's not on and I'm freezing to death. <laughs> what do you have radiated heat up there in Chattanooga? You have a fireplace in every room? <laughs> Got a sweater. That's what I get. <laughs> and that's luxury. I uh, am one of the few persons of my gender who's always cold i'm 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 always cold i'm like an old woman those seven years in honolulu really did it for it you ruined me yeah ruined me forever <laughs> so uh cole the topic for today is uh it came up because i assigned i do this from time to time i assign um episode one of our podcast back when we were uh introducing ourselves uh, to the listener. I assign that to my students from time to time, in part because it's a great model for, to me, it's a great model for having a conversation, (laughs) Um, trying to understand each other more deeply. Uh, And I really am proud of the, uh, the Rogerian approach that we kind of take there where, you know, we, we fully try to, understand and unpack each other's arguments. Is that where we that, first talked about our three tenets that we should read? Yeah, that's right. We explained the three tenets there at the end. And, um, and, you know, we'll do things like, you know, well, I think you, if you say this, does it mean that, you know, really kind of un, rather than arguing, uh, which, you know, we'll throw down and argue, but that episode is a great example. I think at least for my students, cause Cole, I mean, that oftentimes I, I, I assign this in a, in a course I have on critical thinking as an undergraduate course where um, I feel like students have such bad examples in so many places of how to have a conversation, right? Really, it's your job to try and win an argument or to flame uh, somebody or use ad hominem arguments and that kind of thing or straw men. And it's just none of that there. It's, It's a great conversation, but something keeps coming up. And it's come up in our conversations throughout the podcast. I think we hit it a little bit at it once, but I really want to spend some time this morning unpacking the idea of harm because um, you will say uh, every once in a while, harm narrowly construed uh, or narrowly defined. And sometimes I'll define harm, I think, in different ways and you'll let it slide or let it pass because it's not really the point. But um, but we don't ever get around to really talking about what is harm and what are the borders, maybe tease out what are the borders of the way we understand what harm is. Um, we kind of had to hit this at one point when we were talking about pandemic, because pandemic changes the calculus a little bit <laughs> of how you think about what harm is and what the potentials of harm are. Uh, so... Maybe as a place to start, though, Cole, is I, I want, since since we both are um, philologists, people who love words, let's talk a little bit about where words come from and how we, the, the, the modes by which we define something, especially a sense word like harm. Okay. <laughs> okay. You want me to do it? <laughs> well, where I was, uh, let me add this as we start. And, and by the way, I'm going to let my flag fly on this episode, but I will always put bros before politicos 
<laughs> and I will make okay, sure that cows make good barbecue. Yeah. Um, in my field of composition and rhetoric, we talk quite a bit about how every word is a metaphor. You cannot escape the metaphorical nature of words uh, based on 20th century ling linguist Ferdinand de Saussure, who came up with this idea. Uh, actually, he was this was not new to him, but uh, the sign, the signifier and the signified. So the only way we can understand each other, no matter what word we use, is via metaphor. Now, that's pretty abstract terminology and we don't have to go there. But the point is that one person using discourse to talk or to write to another person, um, there's always some slippage in the transfer or the transaction of language, there's always some slippage occurring as the natural state of language and discussion. Yeah, I think that's a, a very important point. In other words, that there is no such thing as a pure definition of anything. It's negotiated socially. It is negotiated. And that's absolutely true. So if if we uh, a great example is the word or the non-word, irregardless. I understand <laughs> it's been added to the dictionary. Has it really? Yeah. That doesn't make it all of a sudden a word. If it was used and we understood it, it was a word, right? And, right. Um, uh, just because I don't think it's, just because I think it has an extra morpheme on there and doesn't actually qualify, doesn't mean that it's not a word because we used it and we understood. Or remember when we were kids, people would say, ain't, ain't a word, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> because I said it and you understand it. It has uh, its function. You don't find it in a dictionary is the dictionary's fault, not mine. I think we played on the same playground then. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, word. Yeah. And a great way to think about this is to think about something like if I say the word flag, what image pops to your mind? If it's 50 stars and 13 stripes, then it's the same one as mine. But if you're from England, it's probably going to look very much like a Union Jack and not like Stars and Stripes, right? If mm -hmm. you're from Mexico, it's going to look with different colors, not the same mm -hmm. colors. If it, Depending on where you're from, that word has a different set of features, has some similar features. They're all made of cloth. They all fly on a pole, but they, uh, they look different mm -hmm. because we've socially decided in, in our group that word means something that the meaning shifts, doesn't it? Yes. And I think people, uh, uh, listeners can probably, if they thought long enough, remember a time in their developmental years when they came to understand a new definition of a word that was being used in a certain way they did not understand at first. I remember being a small punk kid in the living room, listening to my brother talk. And at one point he said that someone ran into a bar well, all, all I thought about was the bars on the playground <laughs> and how he must have crashed into the bars on the playground because I'd never heard the word right. bar because, you know, I, I didn't know what a bar was. I lived in a dry county, you know, so cockeyed optimist. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I, I mean, and the reason I think of that is because I included it in a paper I wrote one time just about how words you have to continue to expand their referential meaning. Um, and it's all, it's an expanding universe in your mind. Yeah. And as we, uh, uh, you know, this is especially true for concept words. <clears throat> um, 
where we end up in this, we're, we're actually triangulating them through some negotiation of their synonyms, their antonyms, and their homonyms, right? The, the things that they're like, the things they're not like, and the things, the classes that they sit in. And so when we use a word like harm, Harm is, it, I mean, it can be an empirical term because if you get punched in the nose, that's pretty empirical, but it can also be a concept word that we end up, we end up dancing or shifting is to use your word between the synonyms, the words it's like, or the things it's like, it's antonyms, the things it's not like, and then the class that it sits in. And we're trying to kind of triangulate meaning uh, through those, through those shifts. I, I think that's important, Cole, just because I've had several conversations. This comes up in, in church a lot where somebody say, well, you know what agape means is, and they just, and they have a very, very specific definition or uh, in the text uh, in the new Testament text, where some folks will make real hard distinctions between agape and phileo, you know, whereas John says God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he actually uses phileo, not agape, right? So that it's not, you can't do, you can't have pure de uh, dictionary definitions of things and walk away happy. Um, and I think that's part of the challenge for us when we talk about what harm is, because um, we're going to discover that teasing the edges, they shift on us. <laughs> it, depend, it, it depends on who you are, uh, um, the meaning of what harm is depends upon who, who you are, where you are. That's right. So let's get to the, the meat here. So where I, are you? Okay. I am asked, whenever you, uh, whenever we talked about this, this podcast episode, I, I smiled because I get asked this a lot, or it comes up a lot when people say, hey, man, um, I understand that you favor a libertarian type of government. What does that mean exactly? And my go-to answer because I'm usually on the sidewalk or, <laughs> or standing in line at Starbucks or something. And I say, well, in general, uh, a, a libertarian believes that people have the right to do whatever they want to do. So long as it does not harm another person, comma, with harm narrowly construed, which I think is what you're getting at and what I have said in other other places. So let me walk into the woods a little bit and try to set this up and then I'll let you respond. In general, it depends, I think, on what we believe to be an American citizen's basic state of existence, okay? And our Constitution says, look, here are some inalienable, inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are God-given. They are not given by the state. And so the state has a limited role uh, to protect property rights and to have a, a military and to protect people from harming each other. But you have to then say, with harm narrowly construed, because our, our inalienable way of existing is to be free to pursue happiness and life and liberty. So if the government is going to curtail any of my natural rights, which do not come from the government, but come from God, they need to have a sufficient reason, a sufficient warrant. So when I think to myself, you know what? I want to go outside and take a walk, walk out my door, walk down the street. And Scott, my buddy who lives next door to me, calls the police and says, um, I need you to arrest Cole Bennett because he's harming me. 
Well, he is. What has he done? His outfit is hideous and it harms my sense of aesthetics. Now, that may be true, listeners, because it's the wrong Aloha shirt this time to a bridge too far. (laughs) Hey, now I've only got 50 to 60. So, okay. so and and I am not arguing that it is not the that it cannot be argued that I'm harming your sense of aesthetics. I'm arguing that that sense of harm is harm broadly construed. Got it. And that that is an inappropriate warrant for the government to curtail me. And the perfect example that you and I have talked about in the years past, Scott, was the New York stop and frisk law. You know, stopping stop and frisk absolutely got a lot of crime off the streets. But you made an excellent point to me. I can't remember if it was on a podcast or not, but you said, People have the right to walk down the sidewalk. And if you're going to stop someone and curtail their freedom to walk down the sidewalk and frisk them, um, you better have a reason other than they're walking down the sidewalk. Because otherwise, you have an insufficient warrant to curtail a freedom that God gave them, which is to walk around, not the state. And I thought that, you know, that was a really excellent argument. Despite the fact that it stops crime, you don't have the right to just stop someone for no reason. Um, Okay, so I'll stop and let you respond. No. um, So I appreciate this. And I think insofar as let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about non-class words on this, because I think one of the things that my side tends to do is conflate risk with harm. Does that make sense? Yes. That it's one thing to say this is harmful. That's another thing to say this potentially is harmful. Yes. So uh, I I want to be careful as I talk with you about this not to conflate risk and harm. I'm going to try, and I may mess up because I do think there. Uh, I do think that greater levels of risk are a problem, but that's not really the comp- part of the conversation here. Uh, so I have to set that to the side. Are you telling me that? that the part of the constitution that defines what harm is, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is that the governing principle? It's not exhaustive. It's a governing principle that says, yeah. So property is included in that, the right to property, the right to own property. It's, I don't think it's included in those. It's not mentioned in those three, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's not specifically mentioned. I'm not trying to trap you, but what I am saying is that If we're going to add property as one of the things that um, is potential harm, we're already defining it. We're already adding meaning elements. Of course. Okay. Of course. We call call those semantic features. We're adding semantic features to include property. But here's the thing is I can get with, I, I get, I get you. Life, it might even include property, but life uh, the living of one's life. So, you know, life is not just binary. It's not just living or not living, but being punched in the nose is a part of that. Right. So any, any, um, imposition to my, to my person, and I'll even give you property as part of that, as an extension of the person, Liberty. Got it. Makes sense. Anything that if it's harm that limits my own Liberty, even if it's walking down the street, as I've said in the past, and you and you, uh, I think accurately noted, that's uh, th- that should not be infringed. And if it is infringed, it's harm 
unless we, um, uh, and, and harm needs to be justified if it's going to be uh, uh, limited. But this other one, it's such a big, juicy, difficult area, and that's the pursuit of happiness. Because I think what the founders have done is just messed up how to have a definition of what harm is by adding the pursuit of happiness. Let me let me just add, I, I don't think life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness constitute the warrant. They constitute a preamble to where the rest of the document goes. Yeah. You know, uh, so I don't think you can, I don't think it's fair to those three terms to say everything you defend must somehow be traced uh, to a warrant that consists of these words, because you're right. Uh, my not having a Bentley is I am unable to pursue my happiness because I don't have a Bentley. So unless you buy me a Bentley, you, you know, that's that's an absurd warrant. And so I don't think we can use those words like that. Well, you know, so Congress shall pass no law to limit speech, but that doesn't mean that you can't be sued. <laughs> right. Well, uh, yeah, a, a, a private tort a tort yeah well, i don't think that's what we're talking about i think right. we're talking about um the government impinging my freedom uh putting me in a cell or taking my real property away from me including fines which i guess a tort we could talk about that but that's not really where i'm it's going it's a little bit it's kind of like risk i mean it ends up being uh one degree separated so it's not really about harm i think the very language of the founding documents of this country were meant to say, do what you want. And the only thing that will ever stop that is if you start infringing on the rights of others. But that expression, infringing on the rights of others, has got to be really material and really heavy duty. <laughs> they didn't have the term heavy duty back then. But um, so I don't think, you know, I think what you're saying is unless you can find where it literally says, in, you know, in an amendment or something about this or that about speech or religion or what. And I, and I agree with that. I just don't think we even have to go that far. Because I think <laughs> the founding documents were to limit the powers of the government, because yeah, the, whole, the whole point was we're going to have a country where you're going to do what you want and you're going to pursue the life you want and you're going to have the freedom to pursue it and you're going to have life and you're not going to be taxed without representation and we're going to we're not going to conflate church and state just you be you and suddenly you know and within a few hundred years we have NPR <laughs> <laughs> and next thing you know he's the pope next thing you know <laughs> we might as well be the Vatican um, okay. So for you, harm is taking your property, harming your person in some physical or uh, some physical way, or limiting your ability to uh, gain property, I guess. Yeah. What else? Um, or to... Uh, pursue my ideas in the marketplace, to pursue financial pursuits in the marketplace, to um, have private exchanges and private contracts with other market players, um, to try to attach rents to my market activities, to try to 
um, to force me to engage in production for reasons that I don't care to do, such as bake a cake for a wedding I don't want to participate in, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to force me to, yeah, for, basically to force me to behave in society um, in, in private exchanges that I, to force me to pay for, um, for schooling when I don't have any children or to force me when I have a child to pay for a certain school without giving me a choice, yeah. um, et cetera. One of the ways in which this is getting uh, hilarious is the way the, the, the script is being flipped lately. I'm thinking about in the state of Florida where CRT is trying to, I don't know if they're successful yet, but the goal is to try and um, make CRT illegal because and the warrant is if it makes white people uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's the warrant. It is the warrant. It was explicitly stated. So it's not just underpinning. Uh, okay. It makes it makes a certain group of people uncomfortable and that's not appropriate. Okay. It's just that they changed the the group from a marginalized population to uh or from a uh rhetorically marginalized population to white folk. Right. But my my question for you is that doesn't work, right? That doesn't work in harm narrowly construed means that if this is hard for you to hear, well, that I'm sorry, that's hard for you to hear. If it's hard to learn a certain fact, I'm sorry, it's hard to learn a certain fact or hear a certain fact, but that certain fact is a certain fact, um, or it, uh, it should not be mitigated in the public square just because it's uncomfortable. Well, my objection, uh, it's hard for me to even think in this arena because my objection is so far in front of that, which is, you teach what you want to at your school and I'll choose a school. I, I know. Want to. I know. Yeah. But OK, well, let's do, let's go to let's go to um, anti-Semitic speech. Some countries actually limit anti-Semitic speech. Yeah. Right. Because they've had some experiences. We did, too, but they've had some overt experience. So in Germany, there is a very there are specific. You can't you can't wear a swastika. You can't do that. It's illegal. Right. right. Because it is. They perceive that as a kind of harm that is registered against a very physical experience. That's right. That's right. That's that's a very apt uh, thing for us to talk about, especially now, because at the time of this recording, um, Whoopi Goldberg has gotten into some social trouble for some comments that she made. She is not in any legal trouble. No one's trying to put her in jail or to right. penalize her with a fine you know, or to make her do community service as a instruction of the court. We've had a lot of discussion of, about whether what she has said is actually anti-Jewish or racist or whatever. But interesting to your point, no one has tried. There's no legal action to be taken uh, toward her. So the, the CRT really gets bound up with me in, in sure. for schooling. So it's hard for me. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. Well, OK. I, I'm I know I'm I know I'm pushing and testing, but that's what I'm trying to do is figure out where the you know, where are the boundaries? So the boundary for you is not um, whether harm exists, but whether it fits within a particular definition. I love I'm fascinated when judges dismiss cases because they sit and listen to both the plaintiff and the defendant. And the whole time, the judge is waiting to see if anything he or she hears meets the threshold for harm. And if not, 
after everyone's finished talking, he or she goes, you know what? You haven't made your prima facie case, case dismissed because of the word threshold. So there's a here is where it is. And I'm listening. Well, OK, the person was made to feel bad, was made, was insulted. The family was insulted. The person's mom was insulted, whatever. But nothing was thrown and no punches thrown and nothing was hurled and no car ran over anyone. So the threshold was not met. That's kind of the way I see it is the threshold of harm that triggers state action to limit someone's freedom or take someone's property is pretty high for libertarians. I have, I have a broader definition of what harm is. It does, it does bleed into risk as I was confessing earlier. So I'm t- teasing out your boundaries is helping me think a little bit more about my own boundaries. But are there places where you think I would be surprised to, d- to find that you think harm exists under this narrow definition? That's a great question. Let me think for a second. I I have friends at ACU who teach in the social work department, and they're convinced that I think that their whole enterprise is unworthy of whatever. But I I told them the other day, one place libertarians really join with social work is with the protection of children. Um, And I think... When you start talking about harm to children, it's different because of terms like neglect and uh, failure to help a child thrive. Mm. These are big. These are big terms, not narrowly construed, but these can be more broadly construed because a child's rights um, have more protection from even a libertarian government. Yeah, that was something that as I as I grew to know you was, wasn't a surprise, but the number of places where you're willing to say that's children and it it becomes an entirely different conversation, right? We have to be more careful about what harms children experience because they are developing. Mm -hmm. I can hear that. Okay. Um, I understand that a business owner has rights and that those uh that they should those rights should not be impeded unless there is potential for harm narrowly construed do i as a worker have those same rights and so here's an example if an employer decides to act in ways that limit my ability to make money in their in their employee does the fact that they're an employer mean that their um their harms outweigh my harms in other words if my uh, if if I'm minority and my my employer is a racist and that impedes my ability to continue uh, in their employ, or that they fire me because I'm black, that impedes that that's harm to me narrowly construed. I lose property. That's not the same as if the your employer goes to your house and takes money out of your safe or takes money out of your wallet. That's harm narrowly construed. Taking away something that we could agree on is an opportunity to work for someone uh, to me is not harm narrowly construed. An employer is a private actor in a market and can employ or not employ whomever he or she wants for any reason. Yeah. This is where I think this is, this is my criticism of harm narrowly construed is that you end up, you have to have a heuristic for whom the harms are for who, who, you have to have a heuristic for who gets protected from harm and who gets less protection from harm. Well, to me, yes, but your scenario doesn't enter into those things. 
It does because I'm 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 suggesting that the that the government has a role to play in protecting workers from harm. Yes, but what kind of harm? Opportunity harm is not harm narrowly construed, but you're saying it still fits into your definition of harm. It fits into your definition of harm as long as that opportunity harm is to the employer. You said it's my ability to operate in the market and set my rents to set my but you don't have the same you don't have the same protections for example for workers because that's not harm narrowly construed even though they're still losing out on property it seems to me that you're that you have to decide that there are classes or groups whose harms um are are more explicit and there are groups whose harms are less expli- less explicit that workers don't have that kind of protection. Well, let me see if I would say that but well, but Cole Bennett allows for uh unions so that there are other protections available but it doesn't need to be the state. No, see, I don't I don't think I don't think that the government has to allow or not allow unions. People have the right to get their friends together and say, "Look, there's no one else in this town to hire." So let's all get together and go to management and say, we would like a higher wage. People have the right to assemble freely and do that. There is nothing the government should be able to do to prevent that. Now, there's also nothing the government should do to prevent the person from saying the fact that you all came in here and demanded higher wage, you're all fired. All of you don't ever come back. The government does not allow that in many states. Um, And I think that is a huge problem because the the federal government has its thumb on the scale. People have the right to do that. I have the right to hire you or not hire you for whatever reason I want. And even if that's because you are male or left-handed or an African-American, I have the right to do that. And you have the right to hire whomever you want to mow your yard or to come into your house. Or if you open a business, Scott, you have the right. So it's not the same to me to say you're denying a person's property if you don't hire them. That is one remove away from I'm going into your house. I'm taking your money out of your safe and you can't do anything with it about it. That is a different type of harm. I can hear I can hear the distinction. Um, and specifically, you're talking about you only you only view this definition in the Constitution itself within the function of the state, not the interaction between members of the state. Right. I only adhere to this definition of harm when it comes to state action. Yes. State action. So, OK, since we're talking about Christians in the public square, if you come to me and say, man, you have really offended or hurt me and I perceive that you are harming me for reasons that I personally in my heart don't agree with, I still am going to care and discuss that with you and try to perhaps make amends or change my behavior or whatever, because I'm now dealing with a whole different context of why I care about harm. So if you say you're using language that's really harming me as my Christian brother, whenever you talk to me, wow, I really care about that. Because I'm, I'm not talking about state acting. I'm talking about two Christian brothers. Mm, yeah. Conversely, let me say something. Let me let me talk a little bit about just how pure, because the thing that fascinates me is the purity of your definition. 
uh, which also makes me suspicious, but nonetheless, oh. <laughs> um, if, uh, if I decided to buy the house across the street from you and turn it into a strip club in, in the purest form, the state has nothing. The state has no protection for you. Is that correct? Apart from municipal zoning laws, that's correct. Well, municipal zoning laws are the state. Well, I'm talking, I didn't know if you meant capital S state or little S state, you know, like little S, right? So do you mean the state of Texas? State of Texas or the the city of Abilene, right? Yeah, that would depend upon our discussion of the 10th Amendment. Remember the 10th Amendment that says anything that we haven't mentioned in this federal document is left to the states and the people respectively. So a lot of people defend zoning laws in the city and state laws as a, a way for the 10th Amendment to say, since it wasn't mentioned in the Constitution, we're going to do things this way. I think you're trying to set up, a, you're trying to ask me a question, though, in a pure form of right. let's not consider zoning laws. Let's not consider. Am I right? Right. OK. Yeah. In that case, that's right. If you start a strip club across the street, that's your property, man. That it harms the value of your property is not really an argument. No, it's not. It's it's not. A, it's not a definition of harm. Not narrowly construed. Interesting. It does bring down my property value, but sure. that's not harm narrowly construed. See, I think what people need to understand is the things you give up <laughs> to have this definition. And my point is that I don't think it's just convenient. I don't think your definition of harm narrowly construed is just convenient because you lose. There are things that that you like you lose the ability to have additional uh, 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 you lose opportunity. Uh, yes. And, value. Can, and there is not a strip club across from me right now, but you know what is all around me? Um, again, we're ignoring zoning and city sure. laws. I have barking dogs all around me and it drives me insane. <laughs> okay. Um, and I sit Cole's here, not down with the dog. I, I don't care. Very me. few dogs you care for. Except Daisy. I love Daisy. <laughs> Scott's former dog. Uh, but yeah, dogs barking drive me crazy and I just can't stand it. But I sit in my living room and think those dogs are not harming me in the way that harm fits my definition of harm. Mm. They are noise pollution. Yes. And they distract me. Yes. But they're not harming me in ways that I tell other people don't harm people. So I, I have to think about that too. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's the part that I think is, um, is so important to unpack. Uh, Cole is the, as the idea that harm narrowly construed is sometimes understood by those of us who are not libertarians as anything that works in the favor of a libertarian. <laughs> I see. So you're kind of, defend, you're helping me out a little bit. Well, I just want to, I, I, I think it's only fair to note that there are certain things that the libertarian has to give up. Yeah. Protections that a libertarian gives up. 